Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a founder that has been there, has done it. You know, he's now on his uh, third business. So so really he hasn't wasted any time. And I think we're gonna learn a lot. So without further ado, Jay Bregman, welcome to the show. Great. It's great to be here, Alejandro. Thanks so much for having me. So born in New York and then grew up in New Jersey. So tell us about, you know, growing up in a family of doctors. Yeah. So, well, my father was a heart surgeon. Uh, he had, when he was younger, invented this device called the intraaortic balloon pump that allows the heart to rest during heart surgery. Um, but actually, and my mother also uh, in medicine, um, but everybody was actually pushing me more towards inventing something than being a doctor or being in medicine. They felt that that was something, I guess it was slightly unfulfilled in, in their lives, but also uh, economically was probably going to work out better uh, than, uh, than becoming a doctor. So, so anyway, I went to, to a university at Dartmouth. Um, uh, then I went to, uh, LSE to do a, a master's degree and took an entrepreneurship course. Jay, why philosophy? Uh, you know, it's very interesting. Um, so at, at Dartmouth, I took advice, um, of, of somebody I felt was, uh, knew what they were talking about to just go through the ORC, which was the, the like 800 page book of all of the courses um, that Dartmouth offered uh, for my first semester and picked the three regardless of, uh, you know, discipline uh, that I wanted to take that I was most interested in. So I took science, culture, and the nuclear age, education and contemporary society, and philosophy and computing. And philosophy and computing was just fantastically interesting uh, with a great professor there, Jim Moore, uh, who kind of coined the term computer ethics. And I just got hooked um, and, uh, and really Love the idea of fusing my interest in technology uh, with a little bit of uh, kind of humanities and, uh, you know, study of what had come before and, and how to put all that together. Got it. And then obviously after this, then you land in, in London. I mean, why do you go so far away? So it's, a, it's another really good question. So remember, I, you know, so I, I'm, uh, I'm about 41 now. So I was graduating Dartmouth in 2001 uh, and 2001 was not a great time to go into technology. Uh, or into really much of anything uh, in terms of the job market. I had done a semester previously uh, at Keeble College Oxford, so I'd been over to England, and I figured I would go out over to England for like a year or two and then come back to the U.S. Uh, once things um, kind of, uh, you know, they sorted themselves out. Uh, 
Um, but I, I got hooked into starting two businesses, and I, I couldn't be happier that, that I did. Nice. So then tell us, because obviously you're coming from a family with a background of, you know, stable jobs and, you know, very traditional. So, so how, do you, how do you go into, into entrepreneurship? I mean, how did this happen? Well, so look, it was, you know, I was graduating uh, at LSE and I, you know, I wanted to do something. I was looking for an idea all over the place. Uh, and, you know, and then I met up with a friend of mine who had this idea that we could use these things called handheld computers, which in 2004 were just coming on the market, not way before iPhone or anything else, to create a more efficient uh, same-day courier operation because uh, he was having a lot of problems uh, getting his deliveries done. Uh, and so, yeah, knowing nothing but that we could do better, uh, we got into the market and we developed software that allowed the couriers to carry around these computers, to have GPS, to have the client see where the courier was in real time, uh, and to automatically dispatch by an algorithm uh, the work and stack the work up uh, so that we could be more, more efficient. So it was a precursor in a lot of ways to the kind of Postmates type businesses that are around now. Uh, except the, the types of deliveries that we were doing were more uh, B2B deliveries. So Harrods, Goldman Sachs, these were the big clients. And also the tagline, happiness delivered on the van. Yes, the vans were great. <laughs> uh, we, we, invest, we, we did a lot of investment in brand because we figured we had hundreds of these vans around the city. So it was a free or relatively low cost opportunity to promote our brand. And it worked brilliantly. Um, so that was, uh, those were the days. Venture back to, I mean, you guys raised some money and then you went off to the races. So, so what ended up happening here? Well, so I think that, you know, business was growing quickly. Uh, we were not so concerned with unit economics in those days. Uh, we didn't, I don't think we really, really understood what it was. So it, this was very much a kind of growth at all costs type, uh, type business. Um, you know, then 2008 hit. Uh, and what we saw was a hugely significant blow. Uh, to our, our delivery volumes. I mean, almost overnight, <clears throat> all of the business of whether it's kind of the investment banks sending deals to each other or Harrods sending suckled pigs around the city, all of that dropped off uh, almost at the same time. Uh, and so it was a very bleak time for me, just remembering back to it. Um, it was my first kind of disaster as uh, an executive. And I, you know, I just felt I was completely shell-shocked uh, by, by what was going on. Things were going so great one day, uh, and then uh, things were going so terribly the next. Uh, and I think, you know, at the time, I didn't realize, but it would probably be the best education and hardening and stress uh, that I could have had to be able to prepare me for what was going to happen with Thimble uh, today with, with coronavirus. But um, Of course. And but there's one thing, one thing there that uh, that I think is very important that I like to to touch on, and that is that you know I think that this really taught you like how to find clarity within chaos. So can you expand on that? Yeah. So <clears throat> there is a temptation when you're younger uh, to be moved, you know, uh, to be really swayed by external events, right? So things are happening to you. You're feeling shell shocked all the time. Uh, you know, you're not sleeping well. But you're really a product of your environment rather than the other way around. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that I have really, um, uh, you know, taken to heart in the many, many years since uh, is how important it is to really protect yourself as the CEO, uh, your, your mental clarity, 
your sense of calm, your environment, uh, your sleep, all of these basic needs all the time, but especially when bad things are happening, because that's when everybody needs you most. And your clarity will, will basically reflect on the entire organization, your investors, everybody needs you in your absolute best form. And a lot of times that really is more to do with simple-esque things like, you know, continuing to work out, uh, being on schedule, uh, you know, sleeping, at, you know, eight hours a night, you know, all of these things that they don't teach you as entrepreneurs, but are so important to your capability to lead during when times get bad and, and times always get bad in one way or the other, uh, at least from time to time. And obviously this was your first experience as well doing an acquisition, getting getting a company you founded acquired. So so how was that for you? Yeah, look, I mean, so it, it's, it, it was fine. I mean, it was not uh, the, the stellar acquisition that we'd all hoped financially, but it did get the business and its employees and its couriers to a good outcome. So it was purchased by the Royal Mail, which is like the, the post office, essentially. Um, but what, what it did was it also allowed me to think about what to do next. <clears throat> and, you know, there were some great, great people at, uh, at eCourier. Uh, and so we, we thought about, well, look, you know, there's this thing called the iPhone that's coming out. You know, the, the taxi market is the grown-up big brother to the same-day courier industry. It's a larger market. It's a consumer market. It's regulated. So, you know, why can't we use uh, the new, this new technology, this new infrastructure in the iPhone to create a similar network that would be matching consumers and black taxis? And so that was where Halo uh, came to be. Uh, and, and by the way, this is, you know, so this is probably 2009, uh, maybe early 2010, Uber is only in San Francisco. So this is still very early, uh, you know, in the idea that there could be a very big uh, transportation tech company. And in fact, nobody, people really were turning us away left, right, and center. And Uber, too, at the time, didn't think that transportation could be a globally scalable market, thought it was a cottage industry. Uh, so, you know, to me, getting involved in markets when they are not yet sexy, I think, is the key. And that's one of the reasons we'll come back to why I love insurance and what we're doing at Thimble now, but but anyway, that's uh, that's that's that. So then, so then, tell us about the founding of Halo and and how you guys brought it to life. So one of the great things that we did at Halo was we recognized very early that in order to really differentiate and build a su substantial business, it was all about happy drivers and, and being able to to uh, to create a community, a, a scaled community of drivers. If you didn't have the drivers you really didn't have the business. And the more drivers that you had um, and the more engaged that they were, the better business you would have because you would have a bigger network than anybody else. And so when a customer went to get a, to get a ride, they would see you had more taxis and you would give better service, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we did was we co-founded the business with Terry, Russ, and Gary, three London black cab drivers. We, we knew about them because they had developed a website of their own that was trying to, to do something you know, vaguely similar with, with different technology. Uh, and they knew the market. They knew the area. They knew the drivers. Uh, they, you know, they, they knew how to talk to them and they knew how to get them to accept this new technology. And so it was a very interesting marriage of kind of, you know, really traditional English uh, black cab drivers uh, and high tech. But it worked brilliantly. They had, I, think, I think there are 10,000 drivers right now in London that are using uh, the, uh, this application today. So you were talking about happy drivers. Would you say that that was kind of like one of the main strategies that you guys used for the supply demand? I think it was the main, the main strategy was that we could overfleet, uh, you know, the, and oversupply the market 
by building value into the driver app and driver community. Um, and yeah, that, that was one of the key strategies. And look, for, for, for regulated markets, it worked very, very well, better than any other platform out there. Uh, where it worked less well was in markets like the US, uh, the kind of black car market. Um, but you know, then again, the way that I look at this is you know, the biggest issue that Uber and Lyft are having today is uh, their drivers, right? And the trust with their drivers, you know, creating a real a community of drivers. And so it's unfortunate that that's really been abandoned, I think. And now that's coming to bite, I think, these companies. Uh, and it's a real, they're having to do a lot to rebuild trust uh, with, with that network when that was something that Halo uh, you know, had put in place from the beginning. So I guess with, uh, with Halo and, and especially for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model? So the business model was that Halo would give away its app to the driver and to the customer for free. And Halo would take a 10% commission of uh, any of the, the, the successful purchases that went through uh, the driver uh, app. So basically, if, it, if, if, a, if a customer hailed, the driver accepted that hail, we would take the payment and we would pay the driver uh, 90% and keep our 10%. In addition to that, we offered the very early in London. So in London at the time, I, the London cabs did not have the ability to take credit cards. It's a huge frustration on the part of many consumers because you would walk into a cab and if they did have credit cards, it was like a 15% surcharge or something ridiculous. So we, we also allowed the drivers for free to use our app to take credit cards off the street for no 0% commission. Um, and uh, that was something that, that worked very well too, uh, for, at least for, for a long period of time, uh, to be able to help build value for the uh, the drivers. But that was the business model; it was a commission-based model. And obviously, a business like this, and and given what what's going on with uh, what, what what was going on with with marketplaces and and ride sharing, where they were like scaling super super fast. I mean, how did you go about scaling this? Because obviously, I see that you guys raised uh, about a hundred million. Is that right? Yeah. So, so look, I, I think, you know, the hard, hard part about building a business in Europe, in the UK, the UK market uh, is only so big, but actually the ride, ride sharing is actually even harder because it, you, you not only need a big country, but you need a big city because ride hailing is predominantly centered around large cities. So for example, London, New York, Singapore, et cetera. So you, you not only need to go into a second country, you need to actually capture all of these cities. Um, and it's just very expensive to be able to go in there, recruit the drivers quickly, uh, and recruit the passengers quickly. And it's also very expensive to do when other companies are getting, you know, at the time what seemed like infinite caps of finance to be able to, uh, you know, to, to do that first. So, so it was it was quite a challenge. But I think there were markets like Ireland that we had wonderful and still do have wonderful executives there that really got the drivers bought in early before Uber ever got into the market, and it is still the dominant service, um, uh, free now is what it's called, what Halo is now called, but uh, in, in, in Ireland, because the drivers bought in early, uh, and so it, nobody else was able to, to really get a foothold into the market. And what about scaling the team? Yeah, so, I mean, there was a period of time that I can remember where, I think I was spending 80% of my time on hiring, uh, hiring both not only in the UK, but also in other countries. Uh, you know, look, I, I think my sense is that it is probably easier to scale executives in the U.S. just because the market is more homogenous and, and is larger. Um, it's also more challenging to manage a business that has five or six countries than something that's in 50 states. 
So that was something that that I learned as well. You know, if you can build the business to be very, very large inside the U.S. Uh, without having to go elsewhere, probably best to do that in phase one uh, versus trying to conquer the whole world uh, at once. Um, Got it. Got it. And obviously the the racing too. I mean, pretty interesting. Now you can obviously compare, you know, with Thimble because uh, you 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 have Thimble here in in New York, uh, but Halo. Uh, I mean, this was really started in London. So. And this was also in 2010. I mean, now we live in an even more connected world. So, I mean, you see VCs, you know, like going, you know, to other countries to make investments. But back then, you know, if you were to go to a Sequoia, you know, they would probably tell you that they only invest you know, in a company that is a bike right away from their office. So what, what, what kind of challenges did you also experience on the, on the venture finances? Yeah, look, it's clearly a lot harder. Uh, maybe it's gotten somewhat easier now, but, but there, was, there was a much higher bar for a country to raise from U.S. investors outside of the United States. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's just more difficult, but it's also more difficult from another reason, which is, you know, like one of the things that I really love about working with IAC, which is one of the investors in Thimble, is they're, they're all here, right? Like they're, they're a, a cab ride away, right? Uh, they're all based in New York. Uh, and so it is very easy to be able to have, you know, uh, casual investor conversations uh, you know, all the time when your investor is across the city. So Sequoia, you know, they got a point about why they, they have generally invested only in the same zip code uh, is because there is definitely a benefit to having the investor and the, um, particularly in early stage, the investor and the uh, entrepreneur in the same city, in the same place. Um, that said, look, it's, it's tough because also if you're looking, if you're in London and you're expanding to the U.S., you think there are some benefits potentially you could get from businesses, from venture capitalists that are in the U.S. Maybe some of that is true. Um, uh, but, uh, but anyway, it's, it's unclear what the best uh, strategy is. Um, Got it. And then, you know, with you uh, and, and with the business, I mean, you ended up doing a transaction with, with Daimler. Why, why did you think that that was the best way to go? Yeah, well, well look, so uh, Daimler had, had already acquired another business called My Taxi, but it had, it had really only been successful in Germany. Uh, and Germany was a very tough market to break into from anybody else who had not, not, uh, not been able to do that. And Daimler is a very you know, kind of uh, forward-thinking uh, car company that, that really believed in mobility, I think, before a lot of other uh, car companies started to join the fray. And so the idea was, look, let's let's merge these all together and basically take the Halo platform and the Halo cities and merge them with the My Taxi cities and we'll create a much bigger business. And, and to their credit, over the, the last couple of years, they have done that. You know, So it's a, it does billions in, uh, in GMV. It's in all of the world. Uh, you know, By now, it has a very disciplined model and operating structure. Um, uh, but, but it also has investment now, not only from Daimler, but also from BMW. Who have decided to to uh, to to combine their uh, mobility investments uh, together with Daimler into this structure? And it took no time for you. It took no <laughs> time for you, Jay. So what what happened next? Because I mean, literally, you went. You is one thing that I've seen. You know, like here in your in your journey, is that you've definitely never taken a break. You know, after yeah. you <laughs> the first one to your second one, <laughs> then from the second one to the third one, same thing. So what happened? It's well, you know, like so. Look, I'm I'm driven to this stuff. It's so interesting, uh, you know. But uh, but also, it's it's look, it just happens, right? So so what happened was, uh, I, you know, I had been very interested always by the idea of 
what would then be what would come to be called the gig economy, right? So people say businesses like Halo and Uber are the first gig economy type businesses uh, because their drivers are taking work from other sources and platforms. And I find it very interesting, this idea that you could create a small business just with your phone, right? You wouldn't need anything else, not a storefront, not a shop front, not even a website, right? Like that, that, that you could just start doing work uh, by subscribing to some platform or some services. And I thought about insurance uh, because frankly, after Halo, uh, which was a highly operational business, had hundreds of thousands of drivers in many cities across the world. This is a very difficult thing to manage. I wanted an electronic business. So, you know, a business that basically you were selling an electronic product that was highly scalable, et cetera. Uh, and so I thought insurance would be a very interesting area. And I thought insurance had the same characteristics as transportation did in 2010. Uh, you know, that it was a very large market, but it was very fragmented. There was really no use of technology, but it was really unsexy. Uh, and so started out, happened to run into uh, someone I knew, Eugene, who was uh, also an entrepreneur, ha had started a business um, uh, previously called Quidzy uh, that was um, an e-commerce and logistics business that uh, had the domains diapers.com and soap.com, many others, competed head-to-head -head with Amazon, uh, and it was eventually sold to Amazon uh, uh, in 2011. Uh, I think it was over $500 million sale. Um, and so, you know, initially, I, Eugene was a tech consultant to Halo. And so we knew each other. And I guess I must have really convinced him because I thought I was meeting him kind of just to be an investor advisor. And he actually wanted to get out of retirement to come back uh, and to help me with this business. And uh, it's been a great partnership. Uh, you know, since then, we uh, we have about 25 people here. We have about uh, 20 engineers in addition to that. Um, and basically the idea is that we are creating a new kind of insurance for the new kind of small business out there that does not want a one-year annual commitment, but wants a modern uh, subscription, you know, month to month or even hour to hour or day to day, uh, if you want it, that reflects the uncertainty in starting, growing, uh, and, and just generally maintaining a business. Uh, so it has been a huge uh, exercise to be able to create the same kind of on-demand experience that we did with Halo and that Eugene did it for uh, uh, for Quidzy with insurance. I mean, the regulations are unbelievable. Every state is different. Um, it, it is a substantial effort to get to a point where you can sell this PDF with you know somebody's name on it that guarantees uh, that you will get um, your claim will be will be paid under certain circumstances, um, but it's also very reassuring because you know from a consumer perspective, everything else is the same except for the products like ours that have actually taken the trouble to go through and develop these insurance products uh, from the ground up. And so, so basically, just to recap, so can you summarize for the folks that are listening what is the business model of of Thimble? Sure, the business model of of Thimble is that. We make insurance simple uh, and we create an app and we create a website for you as a small business to access uh, this insurance. Uh, and then we connect you and the back end, we are actually uh, underwriting that with a carrier and we take a commission, a very large commission from the carrier uh, as a result of brokering this new kind of insurance policy. So obviously now with events that, that we're dealing with like coronavirus, I mean, obviously this is triggering 
a lot of people working from home and and potentially you know exploring doing something on their own so so how do you think that all this remote you know and 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 environment is is really going to change things for you guys <clears throat> so we, we see it in all of our business uh you know we we see it accelerating trends that were already there um but but we see it happening kind of much more quickly um uh, so yeah there there are definitely types of businesses uh, that are doing spectacularly well in, in this environment, mostly blue collar businesses, landscapers, handymen and contractors, et cetera. And what we found is that there is this massive change in consumer behavior where a lot of consumers now want to see insurance. Before they might, might not have cared so much when times were good, but now consumers want to see insurance, businesses want, to have insur want their suppliers to have insurance before they do a job. Insurance and safety are the words of the day. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot more people that are buying our insurance for the first time, but we're also seeing a lot of people who uh, had annual contracts before. Those annual contracts were based on, uh, you know, exposure bases, like, you know, I had a payroll of $250,000 or whatever, that are clearly not true anymore. And because these companies are facing the same kind of uncertainty that you face as a starting business, they think that, that a month-to-month -month solution, a continuous month-to-month -month solution like we provide, is a great option for their business. And so we have people that are uh, buying our month-to-month -month policies um, instead of annual policies because they don't have to worry about having an annual commitment in a time of great uncertainty. And obviously for this, you guys have raised uh, quite a bit of money. So how much money have you raised? So $29 million, uh, which is, uh, I know it's, it's, it's definitely a lot, but, but I think it's, you know, the standards I'm used to are the ride-hailing market, and it's, it's actually pretty... Uh, uh, pretty tame uh, for, for that, given how many years we put into the business. Um, but it is expensive in order to actually develop new simple insurance products and bring them uh, to market in all 50 states. It requires a, a, a lot of infrastructure uh, you know, to be able to do that. Operating the business is totally automated, but the setup costs are, are, are pretty high. So I guess, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're dealing in a in a regulated market like like this one, I mean, obviously, legal. I mean, all of these costs are are crazy. But I guess in a in in a business like this, what would you say is like the the biggest challenge? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is trying to think wild but act tame, and that's actually one of our core values at Thimble. What it means is that you know insurance is a highly regulated, uh, you know, compliance-driven business. You can, you will not get very far like Uber did in just flouting the rules, right? It just doesn't work that way. You you won't get to first base. Uh, so you have to find a way to achieve your goals of creating a great user experience, um, but you have to do it within the rules. Now you can you can bend the rules, you can do the rules in different ways, you know, but ultimately you got to fit whatever you're doing within the rules. And I think that is a very, very tough exercise for any company of any scale to do, uh, particularly a startup where people want to do things you know, right away and they want shortcuts and, you know, et cetera. So it takes a very, I think, seasoned team to be able to think wild and act team. So obviously now, you know, like Thimble is your, your third rodeo uh, and with Halo and with eCourier, I mean, we're talking about you know, over a decade of, of experience, over, you know, lessons learned. I mean, what were the three main, you know, lessons that you knew that absolutely you would apply, you know, when you were building Thimble? 
Yeah. So look, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, you know, the first thing I think was that I wanted to work with people that I absolutely love uh, and could work with, it could enjoy in good times and bad times. Um, so, you know, as much as I paid attention to the team and the team was fabulous in the first two businesses, it, it's, it's even better, um, you know, in this business. The second was that I wanted to enjoy every minute of it. I mean, I have been through many, many ups and downs as any entrepreneur that's been doing it nearly as long as, as I have has done. But what I, what I really recognized and hoped was that if I structured myself, uh, and the business properly, uh, that actually there might be tough times, but actually I could even enjoy slightly the, the, the tough times uh, and be able to really help the business get through uh, those tough times and to be the calmest person in the room uh, when it came to, uh, to thinking about what to do and to try and find opportunity in every letdown and, and in every disruption and every environmental exogenous issue. Um, and look, the, the, the third thing was, you know, I wanted to build something lasting. I, I mean, so I, I've seen businesses that have been, you know, sold very quickly, uh, that have uh, been built to sell very quickly. And with this business, what I really wanted to do was to build something that was going to be scalable, iconic, profitable, stand on its own two feet, independent uh, and lasting. Uh, and that's very much what I would hope to do. And that's what I get up every morning trying to think we can do here amazing so so let's say you know you were to um you know talking about getting up every morning so if you were to get up you know go to sleep tonight and get up in a morning that is five years you know after so imagine a tremendous snooze right you've been sleeping for five years and you wake up in a world where you know the vision of thimble is fully realized what does that world look like so i think about a world where businesses are proud of their insurance company I think about a world where businesses put up little thimbles in their shops and they put them you know, on their pizza boxes and they put them on their shirts because they're so happy that there was this company that actually created a very, made a very complex thing simple for them at the right time. And as a result, uh, made them gave them a stepping stone to success, helped them succeed on their own terms. Um, and I think that that world is coming. Somebody is going to do it because the, the emotional attachment that any kind of self-employed person has to their business is huge. Um, right now, I don't think anybody is listening to that or anything under, anybody understands that as well as uh, you know we do. You couple that with the kind of technological change, et cetera, uh, and I think that that is a much better world for everybody, where everybody can start a business, everybody can succeed on their own terms. I love it. I love it. And obviously, one of the, I typically ask this question to to the folks that come on the show, and and I know that we've talked about you know many different lessons you know during your your incredible you know the the incredible journey that you've had as a founder and and now the third business that that you're in. But if you had the opportunity to go back in time and maybe you know to have a chat with that younger Jay that is coming out of the masters and, and thinking about like maybe doing something, maybe starting a business. I mean, if you were able to sit down there with, with your younger self and, and, and just tell yourself something about, you know, maybe just one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why knowing what you know now? Honestly, I think it would be to take care of yourself. 
I, I think this is the lesson that I and many other entrepreneurs get wrapped up in. How hard can you work? How many hours can you work? You know, it's so great to be working all the time, uh, obsessive, social, you know, the, the social network, whatever you want. This is kind of what I see in, in, in myself at that time and entrepreneurs. And the thing is, by doing that, you really miss, I think, a couple of things. One is you miss some clarity uh, about what really is the right path uh, and, and consider the decisions you're making. Um, and also you, you miss the fun of the ride because you're so obsessed into it that you never take a chance to really step back uh, and congratulate yourself on what you built. So uh, I think that's, that's what I would say. I love it. I love it, Jay. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So you absolutely, you can, uh, you can uh, email me anytime, jay at bimble.com. Uh, uh, also, you can subscribe to our blog, which is Thimble Insurance, which has uh, a couple of articles that I've written about my experiences in 2008 of prior businesses that may be of interest to people uh, that are really suffering through coronavirus right now. Amazing. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Well, it was a pleasure. Really, thank you very much, Alejandro, for doing this. It's a great service. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.